Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> as we look at John 5, we see a deliberate antagonism against Jesus by the religious leaders, rulers, and a similar opposition in Galilee by the people who were at first favorable to Jesus. So what happened? What was the big change that facilitated this action? At the onset of our story, Jesus comes to Jerusalem for a feast. While not specifically stated, according to Calvin, it was likely Pentecost, based on a timeline of the previous events of Jesus, according to the scripture. The big issue for the narrative of the festival is the proof of the subsequent healing on being on a Sabbath. The healing shrine where the whole story takes place were quite common throughout ancient world, especially <coughs> excuse me, in the worship of Asclepius. <laughs> anyway, he was the son, supposed son of Apollo, and was the supposed god of the healing and of medicine. There, Jesus passed by the Bethsaida pool, where a number of invalids had placed themselves. It was believed that an angel would descend, stir the waters. When stirred, the waters supposedly briefly held miraculous powers of healing, but only long enough for one individual to make contact with the stirred waters. That individual would be the only one to benefit from these mysterious healing pools. A man who had been there and an invalid for 38 years was asked an interesting question by Jesus. Do you want to get well? The man's response to Jesus' question, verse 6, revealed both his poor understanding of God and his sense of hopelessness. Instead of answering the question, he gave this gloomy testimony and his perception of how God works. The only hope given in his testimony was his commitment to a myth of a periodic, miraculous troubling of the pool, which allegedly brings healing. Do you want to get well? In that day, many depended on financial support given by healthy individuals out of pity. Another possible reason for this question relates to the man's spirit. Many who have experienced prolonged pain or misfortune have surrendered even the will to attempt to overcome the situation in life. When the invalid shared with Jesus his difficulty of getting into the pool for healing because as a paralyzed man he really has no chance of beating the others to the pool. As my NIV commentary puts it, Jesus ignores the whole superstition of the pool and his plight of not being able to win a foot race with others wanting healing. Jesus proclaimed or literally said, pick up your mat and start walking. The man was instantly healed. Think about that. In an instant, a 38-year ailment is gone. Unused legs suddenly carry this man away. 38 years of muscular atrophy. This man's legs must have been like sticks. 
more like twigs or kindling. And suddenly, he walks. He gets up and walks in front of everyone. One might think that everyone at that scene would immediately fall down and worship Jesus. This man that did what stirring waters failed to do for 38 years, instantly, it's done, and he walks. The second part of this miracle, as I see it, is this. This poor man has not been able to use his legs for 38 years, which very possibly could have been his entire life. Then, this dude comes along and says, Pick up your mat and start walking. Well, the second part of this miracle is that he does it. I can imagine a situation where this is, this is being said. And he may respond, Are you serious? I have not walked for 38 years. Now I'm supposed to just get up and walk? But No. He does get up, and he picks up his mat and walks away. The real important part of this account, this story, comes in the second, verse of, of, uh, second part of verse 9, where it states that it was a Sabbath when this miracle took place. One commentary I have questions whether Jesus went too far. Because Jesus told him to pick up his mat After all, wouldn't it have been better for the man just to leave that mat to the side there, go home jumping for joy, praising God for this miraculous healing? The passion play that we went to really made this scene and all the optics of it come alive for me. Here, this poor man, remember, all he has, his complete lot in life, is his ability to show how wretched he is. All this is done in order to elicit some spare change from his fellow countrymen, just to eke out his meager existence. So here this poor man just got healed, and he's jumping and dancing, and it was, it's awesome in the play. He's jumping and dancing, and he's swinging his bedroll in the air, and, and wow, you really got that sense of elation. So he's got this piece of mobile furniture, his bed. His bed that shows his miserable state. It literally, literally was his very prison. And now, he's praising God for this incredible miracle. And suddenly, instead of mercy, instead of joining this poor man, recognizing an incredible, amazing miracle from God, this religious leader is yelling at him, saying, it's unlawful to work on a Sabbath. Why are you breaking the law? Jerusalem had always been a place of religious zeal. And that's no different in today's story. And now, a self-appointed enforcer of the Sabbath law reproaches the man. How far mankind has drifted from God's intent. Now to be clear, it is the Sabbath. 
And it was the duty of all to maintain the sanctity of the Sabbath. And therefore, they justly and properly accused the man. But when the excuse offered by the man does not satisfy them, they are ready to begin, begin to be in fault. For when the reason for his breaking the Sabbath is known, he ought to have been acquitted. According to Calvin, they are faulty on two counts. That they neither consider what they just witnessed was an extraordinary work of God, nor what they're supposed to do is suspend their judgment until they heard a prophet of God who was furnished with the word. And they disregard both those parameters to use. Exodus 20, verse 10. Thou shalt not do any work, neither you, your son or daughter, your male or female servants, nor the animals or foreigner residing in your towns. Also, Jeremiah 17, verse 21. This is what the Lord says. Be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Lenski, in his commentary, says, These passages speak clearly that the desecration of the Sabbath to which the Jews were ever prone of doing business on the Sabbath and of working at common labor for gain. The prophet meant marketing and trading. You see, Nehemiah was concerned with the merchants and the sellers trading wine presses, bringing in sheaves as well as wine and grapes and figs and all manner of burdens. It says in his commentary, the men of Tyre brought figs and all manner of ware and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah. The first group, the merchants, they showed disrespect for God's law. While the children of Judah glorified God, but they relied on his mercy. A glance is enough to show the difference between this sort of burden-bearing and that of a healed man carrying his bedroll. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record a number of incidents in which Jesus' activity on the Sabbath becomes a focus of controversy. All the Gospels report that disputes between Jesus and the Jewish authorities over the Sabbath were so sharp, they figured prominently in the rising of the desire to kill Jesus. The reasons reported for justifying Jesus' apparently lenient approach to the Sabbath include the argument that, one, because Jesus and his followers constitute a Messianic and a Davidic community, or two, the promised new age has dawned, which the Sabbath and other laws and institutions have been reinterpreted and fulfilled. Or three, that Jesus' presence means that something more than the temple has arrived. Or four, that compassion warrants setting aside rigorous application of the Sabbath provisions, where those provisions and compassions conflict. The diversity of the arguments show how often the subject arose. Is it really any different for us in our families? I know some of the sharpest arguments in my family have had to do with what could be done or should be done on the Sabbath, on the Sunday. I recall growing up that we had a rule in our house And that was no football on Sundays. 
well, if you know me, you know how much I love my football. It seems strange. And it was strange for us. And when we were younger, we thought, okay, fine. Dad spoke, it's law. That's how it goes, right? But when we got a little older, we started to think, no, this really starting to tick me off. And so me and my brother challenged my dad. And we said, how can this be? We listen to Stamps games on the radio on a Sunday afternoon. Occasionally we even get a chance to watch the Stamps on TV. So, and you're there doing it. What's the big deal? And Dad said, well, here's the big deal. When I watch football with you guys or listen to football with you guys, I still go to church on Sunday night. After you play football Sunday afternoon, you always say, I'm too tired, I'm too hot, I'm too sweaty. There's the reason. It wasn't football that was the issue. It was what we allowed football to take us away from. I wonder how many more rules like that, too. Back to our story. Only here does the issue quickly develop into a relationship between Jesus and his Father. In particular, Jesus' right to work on the Sabbath, since his Father does. The Old Testament had forbidden work on the Sabbath. That much is accurate. But what is work? The assumption in Scripture seems to be that work refers to one's customary employment. But by judging by Mishnah, dominant rabbinic opinion which is the interpretation of the law rather than the letter of the law. Anyway, the rabbinic opinion has analyzed the prohibition of Sabbath work into 39 different classifications of work, including taking anything, carrying anything from one domain to another, except in cases of compassion, such as carrying a paralytic. By the Old Testament standards, it's not clear that the healed man was contravening the law, since he did not normally carry mats around for a living. But according to the tradition of the elders, the man was breaking the law since he was contravening one of those 39 subcategories of work to which the law was understood to refer. The great irony of this whole situation is two things come to the leaders of Israel. One, there is a man that's lame from birth and likely been a beggar at their doors for 38 years that has just miraculously been healed. Hallelujah, right? This healing, this is the second thing, this healing occurred on the Sabbath. And the only thing the leaders focus on is that healing took place on the Sabbath. How sad is that? We may look at this and assume that Jesus is persecuted by the Jewish leadership because he performed this miracle on the Sabbath. While Jesus did perform this miracle on the Sabbath, the persecution of Christ is not connected simply to the offense, but on his habit of doing such things on the Sabbath. So my friend was on to something when he made the comment that Jesus happened to do many healings on the Sabbath. As the NIV states, 
that this parallels the gospel picture that brought significant conflict. Jesus was viewed as being indifferent to Sabbath law, as mediated through Jewish tradition and observers to such violations were obligated to punish offenders. Numbers 15. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly. And they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done with him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. So is Jesus, in essence, telling these rulers and all the people, for after all the message Jesus sends is for all, is Jesus saying that man's law has no hold on him? Is Jesus saying that he is above the law? Is Jesus saying, because I'm the Son of God, your laws mean nothing, and they're there for you and not for me? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what he's telling the early church and us? Well, if that were the case, it would preclude him from being our Savior. If that were the case, Jesus could not save us from our sins. The very fact that Jesus is the Son of God and our Savior demands that he uphold, honor, and obey the law perfectly. So what is it that we see here then? It is the next statement that we might tend to glaze over. We may not even pick up on the vital claim. See, it's not solely on the Sabbath observance or lack thereof that the rulers put, their cro- put Jesus in their crosshairs. It's chiefly on his next statement that they proceed to prosecute. Yes, I said prosecute not persecute. John's gospel uses the word dioko, a word for legal prosecution. The trial of Jesus is officially underway, and they have leveled a charge against him. We might say, what? All that for healing a dude who was crippled for 38 years? No, no. It is far deeper than that. The rulers come at Jesus initially for healing, But in his defense, Jesus says, My father is always at work to this very day. The rabbis would agree with Jesus. They would agree with the statement that God not only worked, but continues to work on the Sabbath. After all, God keeps everything rolling on in his creation seven days a week. Evidence of that, if people are born, people pass away all on the Sabbath. So yeah, God the Father, the Creator, does work on the Sabbath. But the next five words that Jesus speaks are like throwing gas on a fire. And I, too, am working. Those five words change everything. And as the Bible says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own Father making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly, I tell you, 
The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the, son, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Again, Jesus gave him this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Jesus makes it abundantly clear to the leaders what he is saying. That not only does Jesus agree with the statement that Jesus is claiming equality with the Father, but he goes further by declaring the agreement, the unity between himself and the Father, insisting that the deeds that he does and the Father does are not in isolation of each other. This, according to the NIV, is a dangerous statement to make. Can it be proven? This defense by Jesus, a breathtaking claim before Judaism, is set before Judaism. If it's false, a serious crime has been committed. We must be clear about Jesus' claim. What Jesus, as the one and only Son of God, claimed was to be sent by God, on a mission for God, doing the works of God, obedient to God and bringing glory to God. This is not a role of one who is or who is trying to displace God. No, this is a role of one who is a representative or an ambassador of God. As God's divine agent, Jesus has the right, Jesus has the ability to do what God does. It all comes down to one question. Who is this Jesus and what will be done with him? I can't stress that enough. Not only this message, but our lives. This is the most important question. Who is this Jesus and what will be done with him? The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, are in quite a spot. You see, there's no mistaking that Jesus had a hand in this miraculous healing of this paralytic man. So you could say God is doing miracle through this man. But, but, he just broke the Sabbath law by openly doing a work of labor. On top of that, once he's questioned about his deeds, he claims that God was his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, they may be able to agree that Jesus is a good teacher, maybe even a miracle worker, but to say that he's equal with God... Well, that's just totally absurd in his mind, in their minds. To be sure, those are sentiments we have heard too, haven't we? This world sees no issue to put Jesus on the same level as Muhammad or Buddha or the Dalai Lama. But to say he is God? That's quite something else, isn't it? 
C.S. Lewis spoke on this very thought in his famous comment. If you haven't heard it before, it goes like this. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him as God, that Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept this, his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who said he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The decision that these religious rulers made was this man who performed many miracles in their presence just could not possibly be God. Instead of seeing Jesus as God, they saw him as the devil incarnate. Kind of in agreement with what C.S. Lewis point. As such, they made the decision that this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, must be destroyed. Today, you and I, every one of us here has the same question in front of us. Who is this Jesus and what will you do with him? We can read the accounts in the Bible, accounts of Jesus as he walked on this earth, accounts of Christ and the miracles he performed. And we may say, how can those folks not see Christ? Yet today, we still see amazing miracles, at times on a daily basis. And yet we observe that we, there are still those who do not or will not see Christ. As I said earlier when speaking of the doubt of the religious leaders, there were miracles. A man crippled for 38 years, legs restored instantly. In a previous chapter, we read of an official son healed from a distance. And further on, in chapter 9 when we get there, we, also, we will read about a man who was born blind, that Jesus healed, restored his sight. All that comes down to one question, who? Is this Jesus, and what will we do with him? The choice is ours. Like it was there for the Pharisees, they made their decision. Now each of us needs to make ours. This is something our youth will also be challenged with in just a couple of weeks at the annual retreat. Now we can choose to be a casual fan of Christ, or we can choose to be all in as a dedicated follower. The choice was there for the early Christians, and it's there for us today. Congregation, what are you going to do with Jesus? Amen. Our song of response is, I believe in Jesus. Please uh, rise for the singing of the song.